Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. John Malpede, the executive director of the Los Angeles Poverty Department, has been working with the housed and unhoused community members of Skid Row since the mid-1980s. Through his work, he helps empower community members through art performances and exhibitions. By creating programs that tell the story of this unique community, the LAPD has not only strengthened community bonds, but has also helped to acknowledge the hardships overcome and celebrate the recognition received by people who, in so many ways, have been told their lives are less than. I caught up with John during the 8th Annual Festival for All Skid Row Artists at Gladys Park in Los Angeles last fall. Among bands, visual artists, and a warm California sun, we discussed the work of the LAPD and the importance of arts in recrafting the narrative of the Skid Row community. I hope you enjoy the conversation with John, with the background of performers from the community singing and celebrating with one another. To begin our conversation, I asked John to talk about the history of the LAPD. It started out as a performance workshop, but now it's the only standalone uh, arts entity, as far as I know, in, in, uh, in Skid Row. We, but we, we make performances. We have a um, Skid Row History Museum and Archive where we have installations and films and talks and meetings. And we produce this festival every year. Every other year we produce a parade, which is about uh, honoring different people, telling the history, history in the streets of the neighborhood by honoring people who have done things, uh, significant things in the neighborhood, in front of the space where they did what they did or do what they do. So for people who don't live in L.A., give like the two, three-minute history of what Skid Row is and how it came to be? Well, Skid Row, as we all know, is a, is a name that came out of Seattle. But um, the, the, the train station used to be, and, and a couple blocks from here is still, it's, it's like the, the produce market, um, the flower market, and the train station used to be right over here. Now it's further that way. But, um, so, so all these... Uh, uh, housing for day laborers, like in hotels, grew up around uh, around the train station where people were unloading freight cars and, and working in the markets and stuff like that. And um, then in the um, in the in the sixties, they uh, they took a resident during the uh, height of urban renewal nationally. There was um, a, 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 the city redevelopment agency um, took Bunker Hill, which is on the west side of downtown elevated area that was originally like 150 years ago. Um blocks that way of Spring Street. It was called the Wall Street of the West. And then where all the banks were and then the bankers you know, lived about seven or eight blocks or even less up the hill. Bunker Hill is where a lot of Victorian houses. Those subsequently became uh, uh, rooming divided up into rooming houses. There were apartments built there. The, the people moved further out and rather wealthier people. And, uh, Eventually, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, all the business concerns started moving uh, downtown. So this redevelopment project basically took all of Bunker Hill and, uh, and got rid of all the housing was there and made it into corporate headquarters. 
So, so Bunker Hill used to be kind of where the SROs were and, and sort of the, the... Well, it was a place where they were boarding it. Yeah. Were, these were still here. These SROs were looking at And there were a lot more. But around that time, a lot of them started being knocked down also in the rest of downtown. So when that redevelopment happened, um, there were, people were displaced. And uh, they were, the redevelopment agency was supposed to do something to create housing elsewhere. And then there was another plan called the Silverbook plan developed um, by a business consortium, but, but uh, supported by the city. And they were going to do the same thing, a redevelopment of everything east of Bunker Hill, which would have been this area, and knock down everything. And the, uh, there would have been like one mission, I think, down on Alameda and 6th. So, so was this was this then the area where was this where poor people lived then, or was it more of a mix then? Or this is where poor people lived, but what they were going to do is get rid of it all. Got it. Okay. And then what happened was, um, at the moment they were about to get rid of it, um, some uh, Tom Bradley came in and they reconsidered it as mayor, and they reconsidered it. Uh, mainly because the developers in other parts of town were resentful that all this CRS uh, redevelopment money was going downtown yeah. and not in their neighborhood. But at that moment, um, some very smart uh, community activists uh, from the Catholic Worker, which is across the street, and from the Community Design Center and uh, the Legal Aid Foundation, put together, a, put together a proposal to save the housing in this 50 square blocks between Main Street and Alameda and 7th and 4th, and that, with the argument that you know, it was cheaper to renovate these places than it was to, to build something new, and that they would consolidate services here, and, um, and that if they obliterated it, like they were talking about, then those people would have to go somewhere, and it might be their neighborhoods. Right. So as a result, people said, okay, we don't want people in my neighborhoods, we'll save this neighborhood. So, so it was, it was a deliberate design decision yeah, then. Yeah, it was very unique. It was, a, it was a, uh, generated by idealism and it, and it won because of cynicism. And, um, and unlike, so unlike in, other, unlike in other neighborhoods, like the Bowery, for example, um, where, you know, where, where there are now, like, uh, I think there's a Whole Foods, a multiplex, um, you know, fancy hotels, it's still the men's shelter, etc. But then it's sort of been, uh, there's a lot of uh, upscale development in the same area. Here, there never has been allowed to be any development in this area. So as a result, um, and six, now there's 60 hotels that have been built or, or transformed that are permanent residents and all these other programs. So there's a real community feel here, and there's community, uh, a number of organizations that, that advocate for the quality of life in this community. So that, so the containment, being contained in that way, and specifically not having uh, market rate development come in and have somebody else's interests predominate over your own interests in your own neighborhood has been, has been significant. So, I mean, I, I think the casual observer driving through, walking through the area, doesn't see that. Right. What, what don't they see that, that you see being here every day? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, they see a tent on the street, and that's, you know, they assume that's a really static image. But it's not a static image because so many people, you know, get up out the tent and, and you know, and, and be whatever, go into a program, become clean, so forget housing, do whatever, you know. Whatever, and, and, and they stay in the community or leave the community. We did a project a couple of years ago called Biggest Recovery Community Anywhere. And, uh, 
There are 80, there are 80 recovery meetings that happen each week. No, I'm not talking about the inside the drug programs. I'm talking about people living in the neighborhood who run, you know, run 12-step meetings in this neighborhood. 80. So there's a very not only you know you you hear again that the neighborhood's invested in drugs, but it's also invested with a very sophisticated recovery um, sensibility. And so people, you know, I know generations of people who used to be in boxes who then became clean and sober with them, led meetings with them, became drug counselors or employment counselors or whatever, whatever. And people see those people and it transforms. And, and it's, I, I'm so fascinated by Skid Row because everywhere else, like, people are trying to distribute the problem, or the perceived problem, to other parts of the city and make it not be concentrated. But it, what I'm hearing you say is that by concentrating it, you get positive role models and you get a positive community forming amongst the people who are here. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that has definitely happened. And, uh, and, and so right now, for example, there's, there's, a, there's a community group that meets you know, here uh, and are concerned about the, the park and about, um, and about hygiene in the neighborhood. There are two different groups that are working really strongly to, to get, um, to get you know, more toilets, more showers, all kinds of stuff here. And um, most of, most, in fact, even even the proliferation of tents on the street is a result of community um, engagement. Because yeah, because about five years ago, when people went to go eat at the Catholic Worker for lunch, the, um, the city. Uh, Public workers, sanitation people, and the police would come and they just take people's carts and stuff and throw them away while they're just getting lunch. So there was a lawsuit filed, and, uh, and the city lost. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost at every level. And um, it says they can't take people's stuff indiscriminately. And so that's why, that's actually why the police so many people on the street here as a result of that decision. I mean, why, the people would still be on the street, but they wouldn't be as visible because they'd be at having all their stuff taken and they'd right, be hiding right, right. out and they'd be further from services and they'd be... Which, know, which who does that help? It doesn't seem like it would help anyone. It's only, a, you know, perception. It's a perception issue. Got it. Yeah, got it. Thank you for the history of Skid Row. Let, let's talk about you and why you started LAPD. Well, I mean, I mean the way I... The reason I started... I was living in New York in the 80s. I was being a performance artist and it was only... Even though I was living like in you know, the East Village right next to the Skid Row there in Bowery. Suddenly, around 83, you saw people living on the street, and you hadn't seen that before. So I always said, you know, it's fun for younger people, especially like up until the early 80s, and that's true here, too. You didn't see people living on the street. So, what changed? Um, I think, well, you know, how, uh, federal support for housing changed completely. <laughs> Budgets were used, and building housing was eliminated. Um, generally speaking, you know, it just like... I mean, the whole the whole connection between uh, public benefits and the rent, price of rental housing became disconnected. Um, I mean, that, you know, that's the truth. Not just for people living on the street. I think it's also true that you know, everybody, you know, the, the economic growth, uh, you know, the post-war growth stopped somewhere in the seventies, and since then, there's been a greater income disparity and all that. So there are a lot of you know, plus the mental health, the mental health system, uh, mental health people were closed down, uh, both by you know people who thought that they were infringing on the rights of people, and also people who didn't want to support it financially. And then, then uh, mental health, community mental health things were supposed to be funded, but they never were. So there were a lot of you know, a lot of uh, 
disconnects and a lot of a lot of things that came together to create what now has become you know I mean, we're 30 some years later so now if you were born in 1983 then you think or even 1979 or something then you think well, so you moved out here from New York in the early 80s oh yeah I happen to be I happen to be out here when when uh, when the Olympics were coming to town. And there were, there were police sweeps here in the neighborhood. They were talking about opening up the internment camps in, at City Hall. They were in City Council, they were talking about opening up the internment camps that they had used for the Japanese during World War II in order to... How was that even in the dialogue? Well, it was about how to make the city presentable for the Olympics. Okay. So now we're getting the Olympics again in 2028. <laughs> so there's also a lot of, you know, already this talk about how we can make the hap- put the happy face on the city. And um, anyway, so I was I was here when I was writing that piece, and so I, I went to government hearings and I met local community members and, and uh, activists again from the Catholic worker. I started volunteering for them, and then I just felt it made more, you know, it was very compelling, and I just kept spending more time out here, and within a year I was here. And so what does what uh, the Poverty Department do now? Well, we make, you know, it's, we make performances. Um, and, and who performs? What? Who performs? Uh, people living in the community. It's yeah. about 95% people living in the community. Yeah. And they will let, maybe let one or two other people in. And uh, we make performances that are, like the most recent one was called The Back Nine, which we did in conjunction with an installation that we have in our space up on Broadway. Well, it's about the current rezoning of Los Angeles. It's being rezoned. New community plans are being written. And um, so the one we're afraid they're going to open up the neighborhood for market-to-date development, which is, in fact, what the plan is, more or less. And uh, so and there's a public process, but sort of the assumptions on which the public process is predicated or happened you know, somewhere else before, and hence the back nine. So we made a playable miniature golf course that's that, um, designed by Ross and Wu, who's a really interesting um, artist who's done a lot of... He was, he was one of the directors of Cups in New York, the Center for Urban Pedagogy, which does a lot of stuff around land use. And, uh, anyway, so it's a playable miniature golf course that while you're playing, you get educated about land use and about the, the uh, proposed changes to the neighborhood. And then we performed on it. We made a performance around the same issues. We performed on the golf course with the audience watching. And then now, until the uh, middle of November, people can come and they, and they can play the golf course and also play. Sounds phenomenal. So, yeah, it's been good. And we engaged, we engaged the city planning department in the process. So they came and, and explained. Uh, they, they, actually, they were here yesterday as well. They've been in participating about three or four of our events over that, even, you know, and now we're part of a community coalition who's, who's, um, we're developing our own, uh, a, a plan that people here want, as opposed to the plan that's being offered. So, so what are the hopes and fears around that potential rezone? Well, I mean, I think if, if, if this area is made, uh, open for market, for any, any kind of development, that's what they say, any kind, then the chances of it going to um, to uh, create market rate or even luxury housing is much greater than than creating uh, additional low income housing. Yeah. You know, uh, developers of nonprofit housing will be in competition for the land with, with these other people. And so most, you know, so you end up with like maybe in our performance actually. 
you know, right now a lot of the, a lot of the developers get variances, you know, to build big towers, and then they have to do a trade-off, and they so they're required to put in five percent very low income housing or something for a 33 um, tower building. So we, in our performance, we did the math and we figured out well, if they did that, they just made like, you know. 60, 33-story towers of luxury housing here, then that would get all the people off the street in the 5%. So this is not the, this is not the rational way to solve a housing crisis. But nevertheless, it, 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 so, many, so many things uh, are thought about, are, you know, and solved that way. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah. It, it, yeah. And so it sort of asked backwards fashion. You also have a space on Broadway, which is the Skid Row Museum and Archive. Yeah, what do you do there? Well, basically, basically, you know, it's about again, it's about instantiating the Bayesian community here. That's sort of what this festival, this festival, sort of also that there really is a community here. It has a history. People have done things that are important here, whether they've started the Downtown Learning Center, which is a huge organization, or whether they were part of the Skid Row Musicians Network, who. who for a while, had a place that people could store their instruments, rehearse, and teach lessons, and, and give community concerts every so often. So there have been a lot of a lot of uh, ideas that have come up from the grassroots. Some have become very successful, some have disappeared, but they haven't. But you know, we've kept them sort of uh, kept track of them. And, and so the idea is both to catalog that history and to make it clear that there is a history. When we first started the project, actually, we had, we, had, we did our installation. Uh, Temporary space, and we said, uh, you know, you know, okay, we're going to do uh, the history of Skid Row. And then half the people in the group said, wait a minute, is there history on Skid Row? There's no history on Skid Row. So we had this whole argument, and then we had to do with that installation end up being called, is there history on Skid Row? Which is much better than the one we had to start out with. I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, that, so, so we, we did exhibitions on the Blue Book Circle, but some of that history I was just telling you about. The back nine, of course, is around the current um, rezoning initiative. And, uh, so we, yeah, so a lot of, a lot of the uh, exhibitions are around, uh, are around uh, you know, current and issues that we see coming down the pike. Yeah. So, so what is, what is the role of arts in this community? And maybe talk a little bit about what today is about. Well, I think it's, a, I think, you know, it's about, it's about, it's about creating community and celebrating community. Performances are also about 95% people from, from the neighborhood, and we maybe live on 
so you've been doing this for how long now? I started, yeah, I started on a guru in 1985, and then this festival is 8.5. What's the most profound lesson you've learned from working with this community? Well, uh, one of them, one of them from uh, the Yiching is perseverance for others. And, uh, but, I, but I think, um, you know, I think what I talked about earlier, that I see, you know, that I, so I've seen some of the, the, the growth of people living in this community, and initially it's generated by people who live here, um, and, that, you know, and the proliferation of it. So there are many, there are many, uh, there are a number of different groups who are, who are taking the lead on something or another, and, uh, and often a lot of the groups come together to support whatever that is. But, but uh, so I, you know, so I'm really seeing the community here. Council meeting. That didn't happen. So, anyway, um, 
Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>